Lord, we ask as we look at your word today that you will make us not only hearers but also doers that we would be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that we as people who seek to follow you, who desire to know you, to follow Christ, to live a life that's worthy of the sacrifice that he offered to us. Lord, we know that we cannot do that on our own and that's only through your spirit. So Lord, we pray that as we are often empty-minded, that we are stubborn-hearted and many times foolish, that you would give us your supernatural wisdom as we look at your word today. Lord, may we hear, may we see where you want us in our personal lives to be changed, to be conformed, not to the world, but to Christ. Lord, may you show us what that looks like in our lives. Lord, as we think of EBS and the salvation of um, hopefully many of the students that come this week, Lord, we also think about the missionaries around the world. Lord, many of our missionaries in places that are hostile to your word, to the good news, Lord, we ask that they would be safe, that you would bless the ministry that you've given them, that there would be saving faith, that there would be proof and evidence of fruits of the Holy Spirit living inside the new believers, that they would have missional success, whether translating your word, whether evangelizing, training up leaders. Lord, those are places that we have yet to go personally, but we can support those who have gone. Lord, may we also pray for those men and women who have gone, that we'd keep them ever before your throne, that they would have success in the calling that their success would be in your eyes, whether that turns into followers of you or whether that turns into a deepened faith. Lord, we pray that you have all of the glory in each of those things. Lord, for a world that is lost and hurting, looking for answers and turning to their own wisdom, the wisdom of people on TV, the selfishness of money and addictions and vices, Lord, we pray that they would hear and come to know that there is only one way to be saved. Lord, that they would hear that through your word being preached, being read, being heard. Lord, that they would come to know that there is only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 today. And unless you are like a super Beatles fan, you've probably never heard the name Pete Best. Has anybody heard the name Pete Best? Okay, so a few of you probably know the story then. Pete Best was one of the original drummers for the Beatles right before they got famous in the early 60s. Turned out that while having the name Best, he wasn't the best drummer. And so the Beatles, knowing they needed a better drummer, brought in Ringo Starr and kicked Best to the curb. It was only a few years later that the Beatles immediately gained international fame and success, and Pete Best, having been kicked out of the Beatles, decided to leverage the one thing he had going for him, which was his name. So Pete Best put out an album called Best of the Beatles. Best being his name and formerly of the Beatles. Well, you can imagine, you know, you go into a record store and you see Best of the Beatles and you pick it up and you get home and there's not a single song that's actually by the Beatles. You're frustrated, you're kind of angry, and people sued Pete Best, claiming that he had defrauded them and tricked them into buying this album. So it went to a judge. And a judge said, well, he is best of the Beatles. And so Pete Best was allowed to continue selling his fake compilation album of the Beatles. See what? Pete Best had going for him was the appearance. He looked like 
he was able to produce a compilation album having the best songs that the Beatles had written. But it was just an appearance. There were no Beatles songs. There was nothing that was actually the best of except for Pete Best himself. His goal was to mislead people and to trick them into buying his album. Well, the passage that we're going to read today, starting in Matthew 7, verse 21, is not a passage for Christians to read and question their salvation. Okay, so this is not a passage that true believing Christians should read and start to doubt whether or not they are truly saved. Okay, that's not what Jesus is going for here. So let's go ahead and read the passage. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So again, this passage is not for true believing Christians to look at and say, am I the person that Jesus is talking about? This passage is for people like Pete Best that are misleading, that have the appearance of being a follower of Jesus, but they don't actually follow Jesus. The appearance has the look of the Christian life. They are on Sunday followers of Jesus, but on Monday a totally different person. They leave here and go home totally different people. The appearance is all that they have. When you actually listen to the album, there's no true expectation that these people are Christian. Now, in this passage, these people have expected salvation because of what they had done. They announced to Jesus, here are the things that I have done, and their expectation is that they will be saved as a result of those actions. So if not the appearance of good works, if not that appearance, then what? Where the greatest works, casting out demons, doing miracles, where the greatest works fall short, then what is the key to salvation? What then if these appearances of Christianity don't save, then what? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Is your Christianity built on a fake appearance like Pete Best, or is your Christianity built on Jesus, your humble heart, and your love for him? There's no third ground. There's no middle way. So let's look at this first point here, the warning of Jesus of appearances. Appearing good, appearing to do good works does not save, but they can be deceiving. You know, you can imagine a situation where someone has committed a crime and they go and stand before the judge a year or two later and they say to the judge, I'm reformed. No longer am I the way that I used to be. And then they start giving the judge evidence I no longer hang out with those people. I haven't committed a single crime since the last one. I've done community service. I even go to church. I've tried to make amends. And the judge looks at that person and sees the outward appearance. And the judge makes a decision based on the outward appearance. But outward appearances can be deceiving. So look at, take that idea of going before a judge, and let's read verses 22 and 23. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, 
Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? It's the expectation that, yeah, I've done a lot of things. I'm a sinner. But look at what I have done. I'm reformed. The outward appearance is I've cast out demons. I've done many miracles. I've done things in your name. And it's almost strange when you think about these people stand before Jesus on the judgment day and they tell Jesus how great they are. Like Jesus is judging their life. Are you going to hell or to heaven? What is going to be your eternal state? And their saving grace is, Jesus, you're going to love this. I cast out demons in your name. I did miracles in your name. Listen to all of these great things. Jesus, you're welcome. Saving me is, I basically saved myself. And Jesus responds to them and says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Standing in pride before Jesus on the judgment day and proclaiming your good works will not save. Proclaiming how great I am will not save. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Human judges, they're fooled. It's easy to deceive someone. Tell them all the things they want to hear, and they start to believe it. Sometimes they might see through it, but as humans, we're easy to deceive. Jesus, not so much. He looks deeper than just the outward actions. A few days ago, it was in the evening, and my kids and I walked out to our fruit trees. And we have a pomegranate tree. Right now, you're probably thinking, he's back on the fruit trees again? I've got so many fruit tree problems. I'm definitely back on the fruit tree problems. All summer, I'll be on fruit tree problems until I run out of all problems. I was thinking about it this morning, and I think, I think God was giving me fruit tree problems to give me good examples. So we won't eat any fruit probably, but at least I'll have good illustrations. So we walked out, and we have pomegranates that are just starting to put on fruit. So they're small, like, you know, the size of a golf ball. And on the pomegranates, we see these little orange bugs. I think I have a picture of the orange bug, maybe. In a minute, we'll have a picture of the bug. They're orange with these little black legs, and they just sit there. They're kind of disgusting, but they're not really doing anything. So we looked at, yeah, you see the bugs? That's, I took that picture. Those are my pomegranates. Well, those are the bugs' pomegranates now. <laughs> those were my pomegranates. So all these bugs, and there's like, I don't know, 10 pomegranates? And these bugs are on the pomegranates. So I Googled it, orange bug, black legs, pomegranate, and I found that they are called leaf-footed bugs. When they get older, they turn black, and then they have their back leg kind of looks like a leaf. So leaf-footed bugs. I didn't think anything of it because they're just hanging out, and I guess maybe we'll have some kind of mutually symbiotic relationship where they hang out and then later I eat the pomegranate, but it wasn't to be so. The leaf-footed bugs have a long proboscis, so farmers are like, yep, they do, which is like a nose or a tongue or a mouth or something, I don't even know what they are, but it's like a, like a mosquito that comes and lands and they stick this proboscis into the thick skin of the pomegranate, and they start to suck out the juice of the pomegranate. The problem is, the pomegranate grows, and it looks normal, and it looks healthy, until you cut it open. And it's rotten on the inside, because these leaf-footed bugs have killed it from the inside. It looks good on the outside, but inside it's rotten. It looks good on the outside, but inside it's rotten, right? Lord, Lord, didn't we look good on the outside? Jesus says, I'm not looking at the outside. Your good appearances are not fooling anybody. Jesus sees through the thick skin of our hearts, 
straight into who we truly are. Never will good appearances save. Good appearances won't save, and neither will good works. One of the best examples of that is probably Judas, who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and could probably stand before Jesus and say some of these exact things. And Jesus, remember when you sent us out? I remember, you know, John and I were out, or Matthew and I, and, and I did those miracles. And that was crazy, right, Jesus? Jesus like, Judas, man, I'm not looking at the actions, the appearances. I see to your heart. Your heart's wicked. Jesus knew there would be the one to betray him. He knew the whole time that Judas's heart was wicked. Satan had taken hold of Judas and Judas was rotten on the inside. The people coming to Jesus here with this, Lord, Lord, have the appearance of being Christians, but they don't actually know Jesus. They also have works. Their works appear to be Christian. They stand on the day of judgment and they say, Jesus, here's what I've brought you. I brought you all my good works. But unfortunately for them, there's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for those who claim the name Lord, Lord. It's a polite term. It means like, sir. It's meant to be a term of respect. No entrance into the kingdom of heaven for being respectful. There's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for even doing the right things. They come to Jesus and they say, didn't we? Like, you can't deny this. Jesus, you know, because you see all things, you know we cast out demons. You know that we prophesied in your name, and you know that we did miracles in your name. You can't deny it. But there's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for doing the right things. They prophesied, they spoke true words. There's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for prophecy. There's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for even agreeing with Jesus. You know, Jesus drove out demons, and like Jesus, we drove out demons. We're in agreement that demons are bad. Let's get rid of them. No entrance into the kingdom of heaven for agreeing with Jesus. No entrance for miracles. No entrance for lots of talk, good appearances, lots of work. Significant, significant signs, miraculous Miracles, wondrous wonders. There's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven for all of these types of work. All over the world every day, there are things done in the name of Jesus that have nothing to do with Jesus, both good and bad. Jesus is not looking at the works of man. God judges the heart and not the actions. Outward actions do not gain one entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 24, it says, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The signs and wonders can be good. They can be good evidence of a good heart but they can also be evidence without the heart. God does not judge on the outside actions. And so to good works and to human righteousness, Jesus is ultimately saying to these people, you want to be measured by the law? You want us to look at your life and your actions and you want to see how you stack up your outward works, your own account, your own merit, so be it. I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That's where we stand on our own merit, on our own good works. Jesus says, I never knew you. In Matthew 5, just a couple chapters ago, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. And this is kind of tongue-in-cheek because Jesus isn't saying that their righteousness will earn them into the kingdom of heaven. 
but he's kind of setting them up on their own pedestal and saying, where they're at, you got to go so far beyond that. Because these good works of the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they're nowhere close to earning their way into the kingdom of heaven based on what they've done. On that day, God does not make a tally of our good works and compare them with our evil works. He does not count the list of prophecies or list the demons that have been driven out. He doesn't score how many miracles we did. He simply looks at the heart and says, have you repented and put your faith in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus came and died for your sins, that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sins because he did it on the cross? Miracles, demons, prophetic utterances don't count towards salvation. The outward works are not, as Jesus says, the will of my Father in heaven. There's a type of bird a couple of them, called brood parasites. Brood parasites. They're very interesting because they have, like, generally speckled eggs, but what makes them distinct is they will sit and wait for a mother bird to lay her eggs in her own nest, and then she'll fly away to get a worm or whatever she's going to do. When she flies away, the brood parasite, certain types of birds, will swoop in and lay their own eggs into her nest. And then they fly away. So when this mother bird comes back, she just has extra eggs and they aren't very good at math. And so she sits on her eggs and this other bird's eggs. And she hatches them. And she feeds them. The brood parasite doesn't have to do any of the work. They just swoop in, drop off some eggs, and fly away. The shell looks the same. The outside looks the same. But when those birds hatch, there's clear evidence that there are two different types of birds. The shell does not make the bird the bird on the inside is what makes the bird. The outward works are our shell. What's in the heart is what Jesus is saying is what truly matters. So if the good works, if the appearances of doing these good things in the name of Jesus result in him saying, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers, then what is the actual way? If I can't earn it, if I can't fake it, how might one gain Jesus' approval on that, way, on that day? And there's only one way. There's only one way to be saved. Jesus is clear throughout all of his teachings that he is God, and he came down from heaven. He condescended from heaven down to us, acting like, living like, walking like, behaving like a person, and yet still being God. But he didn't come just to experience what we experienced. He came that he might, on the cross, die and pay for our sins. The way of salvation, Jesus says, is to believe in the one that God has sent. To have faith that Jesus is the Son of God who pays for our sins. To believe that to be 100% true. Jesus demonstrated an act of humility. And in the same way, we too must be humble to accept it. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus, being God and in heaven, had unimaginable and unnecessary riches. 
There was nothing he didn't have, nothing he needed. He was fully satisfied in himself. He didn't come down from heaven because he couldn't stand heaven without us. He does not need us, but he chooses us. He chooses to love us. Coming down from heaven and leaving his riches and accepting poverty so that we might become rich. Let's turn with me to Philippians real quick. To the right, about like halfway between where we are in Revelation. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 2 gives this picture of the humility of Jesus and then encourages us to do the same. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, here's the humility, he, Jesus, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and taking on likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. The humility that was required of Jesus was to come and be like us, to live where we live. Having experienced the glory and perfection of heaven, this is hard, I'm sure. Having never experienced it, this is all we know. But Jesus came down and humbled himself that he might be like us, but still be perfect and still be God. And in our humility, we can accept his payment for our sins on the cross. There's no way to do it ourselves. There's no good works. There's no amount of miracles or prophecies or exorcisms that all of a sudden we reach a plateau and we graduate to level two or we upgrade in any kind of way. There's no second level that we earn through amount of points. There's no other way to be saved except through Jesus I have a friend who, you know, was an unbeliever for most of his life. And when he came to know the Lord, he describes it as putting on glasses. And he said, for my whole life, everything was blurry. But when I put on the glasses, I could see. You know, when he came to the Lord and came to humble himself, he was able to see. And I asked him, a couple months ago, do you ever doubt? Do you ever have doubt of your salvation? Do you ever have doubt that what you read is true? And he said, are you asking me if I ever take off the glasses? Why would I take off the glasses? I know what it was like not to be able to see. And I know what it's like to be able to see. Why would I want to go back to what I was before? You know, with coming to Jesus for salvation, there's an element of urgency. We like to think, or maybe we choose not to think, about our mortality. But we never know how long we have. You've probably heard the old saying, don't put off until tomorrow what can be done today. And with Jesus, it's the same way because tomorrow's not promised. You're alive right now. Twice in the last three or four weeks, I've had a similar situation with somebody else that they told me. The first was that someone fell, had a broken bone, went to the doctor, and they did x-rays and all the things that they needed to do, and found cancer all throughout the person's body. No idea. You go in for a broken bone, hey, you probably got a couple months to live. The second one, a person had a pet cat. Cat scratched him as cats do, and a couple days later, it was red and inflamed, and then she had streaks going up her arm, 
and went to the emergency room and they said, it might be rabies, you might not make it. Regular people, not on their way to death, just on their way to life. How long we have, and I have no idea. But what I do know is the opportunity to hear, to believe, to have faith, to respond to the good news that Jesus has paid the price for our sins is right now. Tomorrow, I don't know. Next week, I don't know. But I do know that if you have sought to earn God's favor through your works, through the good things you've done, through coming to church, through trying to pray, but have not actually repented and surrendered your life, there's no hope. There's no hope. Jesus says to really good people, really good people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Measured on the basis of the law, you don't stack up. You don't amount to much. I never knew you. Jesus, in this passage, he says, not everyone who comes to me and says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the will of the one who does, or sorry, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Which the next question, hopefully, is, what is the will of God the Father in heaven? In John chapter 6, Jesus had been doing miracles and he had been preaching and the people were coming to him in huge numbers. They wanted to see. They wanted to experience all these good things and they kept coming. But they weren't coming for Jesus. They were coming for the miracles. They wanted to see what was happening. They wanted to experience the fervor and the excitement of thousands and thousands of people, which in the ancient world didn't happen. I mean, every weekend you can go somewhere and there's 25,000 people at a stadium. And back then that would have been rare to see thousands of people gathered together. But everywhere Jesus went, there were thousands of people and it was exciting. And Jesus says two things that I think we find relevant to our passage today. In John 6, verse 29, he says, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is not outward and visible. It's a work of the heart. It's a work that we believe in the one that God has sent. We believe by hearing the word of God and the evidence of belief is that we bear fruit, that we do good works. But it always starts with salvation. Out of being saved and committing our lives to following Jesus, then good things happen. We do good works. Good works are not the precursor to salvation. We don't do a bunch of good works and then Jesus saves us because we hit the mark. There's not a quantity that we first have to do and then he lets us into heaven. Good works do not mean that someone will be saved. Good works do not lead up to salvation. Evidence, as we see in this passage, are outward works. And outward works are not saving. Verse 40 of John chapter 6 Jesus says explicitly, for this is the will of my Father. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I don't think he could have made it more clear. The will of God the Father is simply this, that everyone who sees the Son... Seeing the Son, meaning having salvation in him, believing in him, will have eternal life. And then on that day that Jesus is talking about in Matthew, on that day, I, Jesus says, will raise him up again. Having died, having lived and breathed and moved and been buried in the grave, Jesus says, I'll raise him up again. 
Those who have seen and believed in the Son will have eternal life. The one who does the will of my Father takes us back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes is where Jesus starts, and it's where he's connecting this back. The one who does the will of my Father, back into Matthew chapter 5, are the poor in spirit. The one who does the will of my Father knows that they are spiritually bankrupt. They come to Jesus not with all of the good works and the prophecies and the attendance and the sacrificial giving. They don't come to Jesus and tell him why they should be saved. There's no DIY Christianity that I can do it and then present my findings to Jesus and we'll have a dialogue and he'll be forced to reckon with all of my good works. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn over their sin, who know that by their sin they have offended against and to a holy God, that they have chosen a lifestyle that offends God. The one who does the will of my Father is not the one who tries to explain it away, is not the one who, through a series of justifications or rationalizations or reasons or excuses or really good explanations, you can't mourn your sin in humility, knowing that I've offended God, and then come to him and say, you know, I did these things because of this. The way I was raised means that, man, I had no choice of sinning. Have you seen my friends? I have to live the way that they live. I have no choice. To mourn your sin means to turn your back on it. There's no way to turn your back on it and then go back to it. The will of the one who does my father is the one who mourns their sin. Blessed are the humble. The one who does the will of the father is the one who humbles themselves before God. And when you admit failure, before God. Like, how often do we say that? I have failed. Hardly ever. And I'm much more likely not to be the person who says, you know, blessed are the humble, but I'm more likely to be the person that says, you know, I failed, but. You know, and you go down that road of, I'm not really responsible. It, you know, actually I failed, but not really, because how can I be held responsible? How can I be held responsible for a sinful world? I'm just living in it. I didn't do it. I didn't make it. I, I'm not Adam and Eve. I'm just here like everyone else, sinning. No excuses. There's no excuses of, I was a sinner, but. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the one who does the will of God the Father, the one that hungers and thirsts for what God says is right. Not for selfishness, but for righteousness. Do you desire good things? Do you desire to see good things happen? Do you want good things to happen? Do you want God's will to be done? Do you want the name of God to be proclaimed throughout the world? Like we all say yes. But do you want your enemies to hear God's word proclaimed? Man, because I hate those people. Like we could make a list of people that, we ha that we're at odds with or people that we don't like or don't like us. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means that I'm willing to take this good news to that person. Because I want God's righteousness more than I want my selfishness. The will of the one who does, or the, the one who does the will of God the Father is the one who is merciful. The one who acts mercifully knowing that we have first received mercy. This is not someone who demands justice at every turn. That when offended, it has to be made right. 
I have to get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's not mercy. That's human justice. The one who does the will of my father is the one who is pure in heart. And to desire a pure heart is so different than desiring to be seen as having a pure heart. To truly have a pure heart is what Jesus is talking about. Desiring that other people look at you and see a pure heart is the warning of appearances that Jesus is saying. These people look like they had a pure heart. They did all the good things. But Jesus is saying, the will of God is that we have a pure heart. The one who does the will of my Father, blessed are the peacemakers. They make peace. They live at peace. They desire others to have peace. They're not at the center of every argument. They're not contentious. They're not that person that you know is like always ready to fight about something. It's tiring. It's not tiring to be a peacemaker. It's tiring to be a person who is contentious and to deal with a person who is contentious. Jesus is saying that's not the will of God the Father. The last one, the, will of the, one, the one who does the will of my Father, blessed are those who are persecuted. Not persecutors, but persecuted. And to stand for what is right biblically, whatever may come, is what it means to be persecuted. I don't need to condemn every person who's a sinner for every last sin that they do, but I stand for what's right. My heart stands for what's right because God stands for what's right. The will of God the Father, Jesus is saying, is that we live these things. We don't know these things and ignore them, but we say, this is what Jesus is teaching, that God desires humility, that God desires a heart that recognizes that it is wrong. You know, we were in Philippians chapter 2. One other verse I'll, I'll read. Um, Philippians 2, verse 10. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every single person will either humble themselves or they will be humbled. Some choose to say, Lord, Lord. And if they were being honest, it would be as sarcastic as possible. Didn't we do these great things? They know they didn't. They did them in their own name for their own selves, for their own pride. Never humbling themselves, but choosing to put on appearances and do good works that they might be saved. When I read this passage, I, I can't help but think that these people who were doing these things, prophesying and casting out demons and doing miracles, that was important to them. Makes me think, what's important to me? Well, what's important to me today? Stand the test of time? Well, what's important today be important two years, 20 years? On that day? Like on that day? I'm going to stand before Jesus. I did really important things. Like I totally binged that show. Like, I know it took two days. Man, that was so important. I feel like it's easy for us to miss the important things when we're caught up in the busyness of life. These people were caught up. They were doing good works but their heart was far from God. I think if we think about Pete Best and his compilation album, you know, will I stand before God and come to him and say, here's what I got. I got the best of Brandon, ready? Just drop the needle on it and let's let it spin. Here we go. You're gonna like this. 
This is there's some really good tracks on here. The best of Brandon is really good. I mean, it's, it's the best. It's all that I have. It's as good as I can possibly do. And Jesus is just like, frisbee. You know, it's gone. The best of Brandon is not the best of anything. Our greatest hits do not compare to Jesus' greatest hit. You can look at my greatest hits, your greatest hits, and be like, it's a pretty good person. A lot of good hits on there. I like track seven. It's my favorite. But before God, none of those are actually good works. No good works apart from Jesus. So we stand before Jesus in our sin, in our fake Christianity with our good works that are done in our name, but we offer them to Jesus as our best. Or as true Christians, we stand before Jesus and he's like, what you got? You're like, I got nothing. I know my good works are like filthy rags. I know anything I bring to you is because of you. The good works that I did was because of Jesus anyways. All I have is Christ. What else do I have to offer outside of I chose Jesus? And he chose me first anyways. We bring whatever we have to Jesus, and if they're good works, they're cast aside. But if it's a repentant heart and a humble heart that says, I know I can't. I know I've sinned. And not, but didn't I? Lord, Lord, didn't I do great things in your name? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I do miracles? Didn't I? Didn't I? Didn't I? Jesus says, I never knew you. I said this is not about Christians to doubt their faith because Jesus does not say, I once knew you, but now I don't know you. Jesus is clear. The people that he's talking to, he never knew. They never were true believers. They didn't believe and then stopped believing and they had salvation and they lost salvation and maybe they'll regain it. I never knew you. There was never a point that Jesus knew these people. They were unbelievers that were doing good works in order that they might be saved. For those of us who do good works because we have first been saved, there's a hope. There's a hope that far outweighs any hope that we have on earth, a hope whose future is guaranteed because to us, Jesus also says, on that day. On that day, many will say. And on that day, when we come to Jesus, our works, they won't be valued in the same way that we value them. The works that we do for Lord will remain. The works that we do for ourselves will be burned up. But we come to Jesus with empty hands and a humble heart. We have the hope of glory. Whoever does the will of God, whoever finds salvation in Christ alone will live forever. There's never a point that Jesus says, I don't know you. Because none will be lost that the Father has given him. And in speaking of hope, the day is coming, that there will be a day of hope, but that day is not here yet. So in the meantime, don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. The world that we live in is sinful. It's difficult. It's hard to live here. But if we get focused and bogged down on the things of this earth, the things of this world, it's easy for us to lose sight of things that do truly matter, that do have eternal value. So don't let the problems of today ruin what you can do for the Lord for eternity. You know, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for six months, since January. I feel like the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is like being narrowed down to here, the last day. What will happen on that last day? I believe there are people that have been here since January. 
You've heard Jesus' teachings. You've heard that your heart needs to be changed. Man, I'm just like, every section in here, don't murder. But really, I'm telling you, your heart's wicked if you think hatefully about someone else. You can pick anywhere, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you, man, just care for that other person. Don't try to seek mercy. Don't be like the hypocrites that do outward actions. It's really in the heart. Seek first the kingdom of God. Like every single part of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, don't do the outward actions without having a heart that is first repentant. And if you've been here and you've heard the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and your heart hasn't repented, then today's the day. There's nothing more that I can offer you except for the words of Jesus that many will come to me on the last day and offer trash. Our good works are nothing. Our good works will never save us. And Jesus is saying, I never knew those with good works. Who does he know? The next whole part. There's two foundations. There's two trees. There's the rest of, I don't know, chapters like eight through 10. Or there's these two different paths, just like it was in chapter seven. There's the wide road. There's the narrow road. If you've heard the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard Jesus' teaching. The humble heart is the one who accepts what Jesus is teaching, recognizes their own sin, puts their belief, their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus, that he will pay eternally for my sin, that I don't have to be the one to pay for my sin, that he has paid for all of my sin forever. So on that day, does Jesus say to you, I never knew you? Or does he say, well done? Does he say, well done? You ran the race. You finished the course. You did good. You did good. Got a lot of good works. You believed in me. You did the things that I called you to do. Well done. And that's the prayer that we have, that we run the race, that we finish the course, knowing that our hope of tomorrow is greater than the present of today. Let's pray. Lord, may your word return back to you in hearts that have both heard, received, repented. Lord, we know that apart from you, there are no good works. Lord, may you make us a people who have been humbled, who have been repentant, who have trusted in Christ alone for our future by faith in his sacrifice, death and burial and resurrection. And Lord, out of that, we desire to have the fruits of the Spirit, the good works that benefit you, that benefit your kingdom, that benefit your people. Lord, may we know and believe, may we do those things that you've called us to do. Lord, for those who do not and have not yet repented, I pray, Lord, that you would quicken their heart that you would draw them to yourself or that they would not wait till tomorrow to do what they know they should do today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.